to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. What do the transatlantic cable, underwater mines in the James River, the Weather Bureau, French-built Confederate ironclads, exploration of the Amazon, the physical geography of the ocean, and Emperor Maximilian of Mexico have in common? The answer is Matthew Fontaine Maury, a United States naval officer whose Civil War career in the Confederacy eclipsed his fame as one of the country's leading scientists, or fraudulent posers, depending who you ask. We'll learn more about this remarkable character from John Grady, author of Matthew Fontaine Maury, Father of Oceanography, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller. In epic and sweeping fashion, Vicksburg chronicles the Union's year-long campaign to take Vicksburg and split the Confederacy, while also arguing that the conquest of Vicksburg was the pivotal turning point of the war. One of the most fascinating aspects of the book is its detailed accounts and reconstruction of the ironclad battles led by Admiral Porter along the Mississippi and Yazoo Rivers and their tributaries and swamps. No recent book on the Civil War achieves the level of detail and insight as Vicksburg. Available now wherever books are sold. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, in the same town as the East Carolina University. But not speaking for ECU, not representing it tonight, just talking to you about the Civil War by myself, and my guests will likewise do the same. I'm not in my office in the Brewster Building at ECU because they're they're fixing the place. Brewster Building, if you ever go to the ECU website, you can get a look at it. 
is a, a 1960s era quadrangle of four buildings built in a brutalist style with lots of raw concrete. And it consists of four four separate wings. I'm in the A wing where the offices are, but B, C, and D wings have classrooms where I teach. And the four wings, four buildings are completely separate with stair towers in between them. You actually go out uh, an external door into the stair tower, then through another door to the next wing. And there's all kinds of weird things that this brings about. One is that the, the floors are not even. So when I leave my office on the third floor, a wing to go to the B wing, I have to go down half a flight to get to the second floor of B wing and then up a full flight to get to the third floor. So from third floor A to third floor B is down half and up a whole flight of stairs. It looks like an Escher drawing, sort of watching people go up and down these stairs. But the stairs also are exposed to the outside elements. The uh, towers have walls about chest high that you and they're open above that. You can look out from the landings and drop things on people below if you wanted to do that, I suppose. Uh, and apparently, according to a graduate student of ours who did some research in the history of the building, it was uh, he found the, the blueprints in, uh, at NC State and Raleigh in their archive. The original plan called for enclosed towers with glass, but it was cheaper not to do that. So they're open to the wind and rain. And the result is after... 40 years of freezing and thawing, wind and rain, the stairs are crumbling, like really crumbling, like almost unusable sometimes. So they decided to finally fix them, and that meant uh, they don't want to drill and hammer during class hours, so they start in the afternoon. And right outside my office at 6.30 tonight, they are pounding and hammering, and I realized I had to come home and talk to you from here because it's deafening back in the Brewster building tonight. So that's what's happening here at ECU. Uh, in Civil War news, many of you probably saw that Jim Lighthizer is retiring from the Civil War, uh, the Civil War Trust. Now it's the American Battlefield Trust. Uh, he played a big role in moving that organization into the becoming the main organization for Civil War preservation. We'll see who takes over. And in other landmarks of the past week, here in November of 2019, uh, James Bud Robertson, the biographer of Stonewall Jackson, has passed away, uh, another landmark in Civil War history. Here at Civil War Talk Radio, uh, no d- developments that dramatic. We did start having sponsors on the show last week, the uh, last show of October 2019 was the first one to have a sponsor, to have a major publisher advertise uh, a book. And the feedback I've gotten so far has been generally positive on this development. We may get other Civil War-related sponsors. I do pledge we will not have random, unconnected products being advertised on the show. You'll still get to hear the wacky promos for other shows on on, uh, Voice America when there aren't paid uh, advertisers. Uh, And I want to reiterate, as I said last week, that doesn't mean that uh, interview slots on the show are for sale. Uh, Don Miller's book on Vicksburg, which is being advertised now, is in fact coming up on November 20th, just two weeks from now. But it's been on the calendar for a long time, long before uh, advertising came into it. I think it's a a book that I will find worth my while to read and and hopefully you will 
two to hear about. So, as I said last week, uh, advertising does not change the process by which books will be selected, with the exception that if you were to offer thousands and thousands of dollars to advertise on the show, I would then uh, be happy to interview you about anything at all. It, it Basically, it's the story of the, the anecdote you've all heard, uh, usually associated with Winston Churchill, although apparently it's not not authentic to him. It, it gets connected to other names of uh, where he says to some uh, woman at a party, would you spend the night with me for one million pounds? And she grudgingly agrees. And then he says, what about five pounds? And she says, what do you take me for? And he says, we've established that. We're just trying to haggle over the price. Uh, so that's how we are doing with uh, advertising here on Civil War Talk Radio. Virtue intact unless you have enough money. Whether you have enough money or not, if your book is uh, intriguing, we'll talk about it here. We'll do that next week, November 13th, with Philip Gerard. He has a book called The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. Then Don Miller's Vicksburg uh, book on the 20th, Thanksgiving week. We'll take the week off. I hope you will, too. We'll be back for two more shows in the fall season of 2019, December 4th brings us James Robbins Jewell, who has edited uh, correspondence and reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. So we'll learn about duty in the Pacific Northwest during the Civil War. And we'll wrap up the season with Kevin M. Levin, friend of the show, returning to talk about his book, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. So lots coming up. Uh, Not too early to sign up for the 2020 Hallowed Ground Tours with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Look on the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours website for that. Uh, Some listeners have already signed up. Look forward to meeting more of you uh, this coming May and June. And, of course, in June, also the 2020 Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Sign up for that. Tell them you're a listener to the show. They'll give you a discount. And I'll be on the program this year, so you'll get a chance to uh, hear me say something from a, a behind a lectern, but more important, we'll get to eat meals together, hang out, walk the battlefield. So do sign up for the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Tonight we're talking about a figure I knew very, very little about before this week, uh, Matthew Fontaine Mori. The reason I know about it is reading a biography written by our guest tonight, John Grady, and the best way to find out more is to talk to him. Uh, Mr. Grady, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, uh, you mentioned in an email you, you in your day job, uh, or go by John, first names, and I hope you will call me Jerry as well. Uh, yeah. But tell us about your, your, your day job. What do you do when you're not writing about Matthew Fontaine Mori? Well, I retired from the Association of the United States Army, where I was director of communications for just under 18 years. Before mm-hmm. that, I had been managing editor of Navy Times. And before that, I had been uh, assistant managing editor for news at the Daily Press in Newport News, Virginia. Right now, I'm still doing uh, national security reporting, primarily for the Naval Institute. Uh, and uh, also trying to complete another book on a Civil War figure 
uh, John Yates Bell, who was hanged as a Confederate spy, pirate, and guerrilla in New York Harbor in February of 1865. Hmm. That sounds uh, intriguing. We'll definitely have to stay in touch uh, as, as you work on that. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, I have a, a very soft spot for the, uh, the Naval Institute. They publish you know, really interesting material, uh, both historical material, Civil War Naval related, but also other wars and contemporary issues. I recall buying Tom Clancy's Hunt for Red October when they published it, I don't know, 1980s maybe? Um, yes, uh, in the mid-1980s. In fact, they're still getting, uh, I'm sure they're still getting revenue, not from Clancy, but from the figure Jack Ryan, which ah. they still hold some type of copyright access to. So every time I guess that it shows up on Amazon, um, the Naval Institute gets some, uh, you know, a, a little money. Well, good for them. They it, it was their first <laughs> not their first work of fiction, the first novel they published, and there yeah, was some. Yeah, well, it was their first work of fiction, and uh, they've gone on and put some pretty good uh, works of fiction along their line uh, along the lines of uh, more contemporary things. Uh, to include Ward Carroll's books of, about uh, flying A6 Avengers and, and very very good books. Uh, it, and I'm not because I am I'm not formally on the payroll. I'm a contractor to him to do do stuff. Uh-huh. I'm intrigued by the books, so uh, I'm, I'm pushing those, those along. And of course, they have the mainstays uh, there for the Blue Jackets Manual for Basic mm-hmm. Sailors and Watchstanders Guide, which teach you know junior officers, what they need to do on the ship. Well, that's a good segue to Matthew Fontaine Mori, who is remembered to the extent he is partly for some of the things he wrote uh, about the sea, and he was certainly interested in, in naval education. How did you come across this figure, and, and what brought you to be interested in uh, Well, in, in it, it actually came about... Uh, it, well, I'll tell you how I immediately got to Matthew Fontaine Mori, but then actually the story goes back further than that. Uh, I worked, and when I was working in Newport News, I lived in Gloucester, Virginia, and I had to drive 40 miles to work every day, and I drove through the Yorktown battlefield uh, on my way to work, and uh, where I would turn onto Warwick Boulevard, I would go by the Mariner's Museum, and at the Mariner's Museum, which is a wonderful place to visit, Yes. Uh, in Newport News, uh, there is a Lake Maury. And, you know, I drive by it every day. And I didn't think too much about it. Uh, and eventually my wife and I joined the Mariner's Museum, and there were things in there about Matthew Fontaine Maury that I sort of breezed on by. I was more interested in a lot of the material that they had for shipping uh, shipbuilding, because, you know, Newport News built aircraft carriers, they built submarines, and I was, in, I was interested in that. And I went to a Virginia Press Association meeting, and my contemporary and peer at the Richmond Times-Dispatch was a man named Marv Garrett, who uh, has uh, died of cancer uh, probably about 15 years ago now. Wonderful man, great historian, wonderful newsman. And we were at this Virginia Press Association meeting discussing ethics uh, uh, in in newspapering. And I won't say why we were discussing ethics, but it did did involve the Daily Press and the Richmond Times-Dispatch. 
and he suggested that I it, he, had, he asked me if I had ever been up Monument Avenue in in Richmond, and even though I had been going to Richmond fairly often, I had been basically around the state capitol, and the Times Dispatch's offices were downtown, probably oh say six or seven blocks from the state capitol, and that was basically where I had been, and I'd also been up to a section called Church Hill, which is where St. John's is, where Patrick Henry supposedly gave whatever he gave there, you know, uh, mm-hmm. defending uh, defending the colonies' rights to uh, assert themselves against Britain. And he said, "Well, you need to go on Monument uh, Boulevard." And he was a he was an FFE, a first family of Virginia. He said, "You you need to see this pantheon of Confederacy," and he was not a massive resistor in any way, shape, or form. You have to understand, he was saying this very sardonically. And I said, okay, well, you know, uh, I need to get back here for the dinner. He said, oh, well, you know, you can drive on. It's only about uh, two miles from here. Then you get out of your car and you can walk around. So I'm driving around, and I get on Monument, uh, Monument, and I'm driving up, and I see, see, first of all, I see uh, Jeb Stewart, and then I see uh, Davis, and I see Robert E. Lee, and I see... Jackson, I've come to what is now Arthur Ashe Boulevard. At that mm-hmm. point, it was just simply Boulevard. And I was planning to turn around and go back, but I couldn't make the turn around the statue because traffic was too heavy coming in the other way. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, heck, I'll just go up another block, which I did. And lo and behold, here's this monument to Matthew Fontaine Morey. And I literally pulled the car over to the side of the circle. And you can park there. I want to point out to people that I was not you know, just immediately stopping in traffic. You know, you can pull off to the side and you can stop. And I walked over and looked at this thing, and I see the globe, and I see all of this stuff. And this does not look like any of the other monuments. I mean, and I'm, oh, I'm going, hmm. And then the connection to what I Lake Maury and what I had seen at uh, uh, what I had seen at uh, excuse me at the Mariners Museum started to come clear. And I John, I'm, I'm going to step in. I'm going to step in for a minute because we need to take a break. But this is a good place because we are all intrigued now to find out why this guy has a big monument uh, in Richmond. We're going to find out more about that when we come back in just a moment. Talking tonight with John Grady, author of Matthew Fontaine Maury, Father of Oceanography, a biography, 1806-1873. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller. In epic and sweeping fashion, Vicksburg chronicles the Union's year-long campaign to take Vicksburg and split the Confederacy, while also arguing that the conquest of Vicksburg was the pivotal turning point of the war. One of the most fascinating aspects of the book is its detailed accounts and reconstruction of the ironclad battles led by Admiral Porter along the 
Mississippi and Yazoo Rivers and their tributaries and swamps. No recent book on the Civil War achieves the level of detail and insight as Vicksburg. Available now wherever books are sold. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program please send an email to prokopovich g at ecu dot edu that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Grady, author of Matthew Fontaine Mori, Father of Oceanography. The, the book is a biography about a man who lived from 1806 to 1873, uh, he served in the U.S. Navy much of his life up to the Civil War and then the Confederate uh, Naval Service, but he's not so well remembered today, yet there's a big monument to him in Richmond, uh, in, in Monument Row, after you get beyond the famous ones. So, John, what you when you came across that monument, that, that got you on the, put you on the trail to find out who this guy was? Well, it did, and it also connected me back to what I had been studying uh, years before at the University of Illinois under uh, uh, Raymond Phineas Stearns, who was a great colonial American historian and won a National Book Award for colonial science. And he had introduced me to the Reverend James Morey. That was Morey's grandfather. And the Reverend James Morey was Thomas Jefferson's teacher, and in fact, Jefferson lived for two years with the Morey family uh, before he went to William and Mary, and I, all of a sudden, all of this stuff started to fall into place. I also had the great fortune to interview uh, a retired uh, East Carolina University professor, Bill Still, who uh, was no, no. Uh, at the, who uh, had been brought at, to Washington as a Secretary of the Navy historian. And I began to talk to him about possibly doing something on Maury because there had not been a book written on him, a, a major work on him since Francis Lee Williams uh, sometime in the 1960s at that point uh, from Rutgers University Press. 
and he encouraged me over the years, and uh, I owe him a great debt of gratitude for not only reading the manuscript, but helping me to keep going along and getting it produced. Well, Bill is a great guy. He's uh, one of the founders of the Maritime Studies Program here at East right. Carolina University, and and uh, still see him occasionally. He's he's not usually around campus. I think he's more often in Hawaii these days, but uh, <laughs> uh, often good to see him. So, uh, Maury, who as we've largely forgotten about, was one of the foremost scientists in the United States before the Civil right. War. If you t- how does how, well, go ahead. How does a Navy officer get to be a scientist? Well, if you take a look at uh, American science in the uh, pre-Smithsonian establishment, so we're talking about the uh, 1830s and 1840s, uh, there were only three areas in which the United States federal government was doing any type of applied science. The first was through the Coast Survey, which barely was surviving because Congress couldn't understand why are we out there, you know, doing our coast? Why are we putting, why are we trying to find out where lighthouses go? You know, I mean, this was, we're not going to spend any money kind of Congress. Uh, Then there was also the Navy's need to find out things like where is the magnetic North Pole? It moves. And that determines where a ship would help in ship's navigation to know where they are on the sea. So, And uh, there was also the need for a naval, or not a naval observatory, but a national observatory. There were only three or four observatories in the U.S. at the time. One was at Harvard, uh, one was in Philadelphia, and I don't remember where the other two were. And the one in Philadelphia was at high school, actually, uh, Gerard mm-hmm. High School. And... Uh, Maury, because of his keen interest in mathematics, just gravitated following a serious injury that stifled his at-sea career, which would be the normal way to promote. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, he was put into the charts and uh, uh, the Bureau of Charts and Depots. That led eventually, not through Maury's lobbying, but naval lobbying to get a national observatory that the Navy took over to the great disgust of other scientists. They're saying, why is the Navy doing this? We need to be doing pure science. Well, okay. Maury ended up there. Joseph Henry ended up at the Smithsonian. Alexander Dallas Bache ended up over at Coast Survey. For 20-plus years, these men were at each other's throats. Well, actually, I should say Bates and Henry were allies opposed mm-hmm. to uh, Maury. And they just were fighting for this applied science money. And this also led the Navy into creating ways to, phone, uh, to uh, do great scientific expeditions, uh, primarily for naval objectives. We're not saying that they were out there trying to do what uh, some of the, some parts of what Darwin did when he was uh, going around on Beagle uh, with the Royal Navy. No, they were more interested in charting, depth of oceans, and the like. So they were there in place for 20-plus years fighting each other over appropriations, and they became the catalysts of what became American science. I mean, they re- they really were. There's no question of it, because Maury okay. then went with the Confederacy. The other two 
actively went with the union. Well, I, I was fascinated you know, to see reading this account of, of the the political and bureaucratic infighting between uh, uh, Henry, the Secretary of the Smithsonian, and, and Bage at the Coast Survey, and Maury at the Naval Observatory. That these three institutions and their three leaders uh, are battling it out. And to anybody in higher education, it was a very familiar sort of thing to read, where you have uh, people you know competing for grants, and you also have, I thought, the 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 competition, uh, the argument between uh, you know Henry, who's uh, has a background at Princeton, and Morley, mm-hmm. who is essentially self-taught. Uh, each week here on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, at some point we'll talk about uh, frequently authors where their interest is from, but also what their background is. And I guess half the time I'm talking to people who are professionally trained, have a PhD in history, mm-hmm. and half the time talking to people who are lawyers or uh, engineers or uh, teachers at secondary level, doing something else, but fascinated mm-hmm. by history, and they've spent enough time. And the academy often has disdain for this, but often they're missing some really good history that's written that way. And I, I, so I could see Maury in that same boat, uh, no pun and, intended. But Maury was, Maury was forcing the Navy itself to professionalize its education. And make sure that its officers were not trained the same way that he had been. He wanted them to not only learn how to operate a ship at sea, he wanted them to learn foreign languages. He wanted them to understand uh, diplomacy. He wanted them to, uh, of course, really grasp mathematics so that they could navigate more properly. And also how to handle a ship in combat. And uh, he is, in large part... Well, I shouldn't say in large part. He was one of the main figures in the drive that led to the creation of the Naval Academy in 1845. And even up until the Civil War, the Naval Academy was regarded uh, as only a trade school. You know, they were still teaching the basics of seamanship. And that uh, flew in the face of the Army's military academy because the way Jefferson set that up, using the French model, this was going to teach great engineering that could be applied to civilian projects as well as military projects. And the Navy had no connection that way. Now, one of the ironies here is that, that Maury works very hard in the Navy for reform of education, but one of the reforms that finally comes about in the 1850s is they create a uh, a retiring board because there are all these superannuated lieutenants who've been in the service for 40 years and uh, there's no room for promotion for, for young officers. And of course, Maury is one of those guys. He's still, I guess, a lieutenant in 1855 and he hasn't been to correct. sea forever because mm-hmm. of his injuries. So there he is. Yeah, he, and he's the one there. So the retiring board says, you've got to go. Plus, you also have to remember there was already, because of the great divide between Bache and Henry, mm-hmm. there was also a political divide that went along with that. Jefferson Davis, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Judah P. Benjamin, and a number of other senators lined up with Bache and Henry uh, in how they wanted to look at the Navy and Samuel F. DuPont who had a major role in the Civil War, mm-hmm. led the retiring board, even though he was not 
the president of the board, that was Franklin Buchanan, who later was a command, was a senior admiral in the Confederate Navy and was mm-hmm. aboard uh, CSS Virginia during the uh, Battle of Hampton Roads. Uh, they brought names like Maury before them and Charles Stewart, who had a, an illustrious uh, career running the Philadelphia Naval Yard after his great successes during the War of 1812. They were probably the two most prominent uh, uh, officers put uh, forcibly retired. Now, Maury was ordered to stay in his position and run the, supra, run the uh, observatory, and I believe Stewart was brought back to run the Philadelphia Naval Yard, uh, and supposedly as a civilian as well. And he remained retired, and Maury fought tooth and nail to get his uh, uh, status uh, back on active duty in the Navy and eventually succeeded. Now, as I was reading your account of the uh, of that bureaucratic battle, you mentioned the enemies of, of Maury, but he had allies in the Senate, people like John Bell and Sam Houston, uh, and right. Civil War names that everybody recognizes, Crittenden, Toombs, others. And then the enemies, the ones who were trying to get him retired, not only Jefferson Davis, but you mentioned Stephen Mallory, Judah Benjamin, who are going to be Confederate cabinet members. Uh, so this is not going to, this doesn't bode well for Maury at this point, since, since no, the reader I knows mean, he's going to end up in the Confederacy. <laughs> it does not bode well at all, uh, even though Mallory at first was uh, an ally of Maury. By the time they got done with the retiring board, he was as bitter an enemy as possible. And eventually when the Confederate Navy was established and Maury was brought into the Confederate Navy, um, they couldn't get rid of him. They, being both Davis and Mallory, couldn't get rid of him fast enough. Yet, he hung on. And uh, I'd like to go into some of that Civil War uh, material, uh, particularly Absolutely. because I think a lot, of, a lot of it was really very innovative. Uh, he understood the value of, uh, of mines. Uh, they called them torpedoes. But he and Hunter Davidson and Bob Miner, Robert Miner, Lieutenant Robert Miner, who was a cousin, every, it seemed like everybody in the Navy was a cousin of Maury in one way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, they perfected the use of the ranges on the James River and in other, in other ports, backed up with the big guns that they had confiscated uh, when uh, the Gosport Naval Shipyard in uh, Portsmouth was taken over, Richmond never fell from uh, never fell from the water during the Civil War. Every time that the Union tried to assault the city to back the land campaigns, they were mm-hmm. beaten back by the combination of the mines and the in the emplaced artillery. In uh, Maury was largely responsible for that. And unlike a lot of mine laying done around the world today, they actually drew maps or charts, since we're talking mm-hmm. water, of where they placed the mine so they would know where they were. You know, so it's they wouldn't be killing the war, themselves. Yeah. 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 So the, the, uh, at, when Maury makes the decision to go with the Confederacy, and that never was in doubt. You, you, you talk about his loyalty to Virginia, his pro-slavery right. views. Uh, his, his, you know, politically and, and culturally, he was certainly going to go with Virginia. 
but he he becomes the head of Confederate coast defense, at least uh, in the yeah, Virginia and, area. Right, and what he was also looking at uh, when he was head of uh, Confederate coastal defenses was not just what I mentioned there, the combination of the artillery and uh, the uh, torpedoes, the mines in the water. Also, he looked at how do you foil an invading force. Mm-hmm. Well, one way to, fail, uh, to foil an invading force when you don't have much of a navy is to build small boats and arm them with big guns. So he came up with little ship big guns. This was just anathema to uh, Mallory, and of course Mallory was a actually a very close friend of Davis over the years, and they didn't want to spend a million dollars on this project to build these hundred gunboats, uh, and they were and they were committed to building a ship or not a ship. They were committed to building ships that had iron plating on them that they saw as both commerce raiders and vessels that could attack northern cities and wreak havoc there and eventually force the Union to recognize that the Confederacy was an independent state. Um, it, it's a remarkable set of, of plans, this idea of the, the, the nest of hornets, he called them, the, yeah. the, all these mm-hmm. little gunboats. Uh, we're going to take another short break, come back, sure. talk more about Matthew Fontaine Maury and his Civil War career in the Confederacy. Our guest tonight is John Grady, author of Matthew Fontaine Maury, Father of Oceanography. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller. In epic and sweeping fashion, Vicksburg chronicles the Union's year-long campaign to take Vicksburg and split the Confederacy, while also arguing that the conquest of Vicksburg was the pivotal turning point of the war. One of the most fascinating aspects of the book is its detailed accounts and reconstruction of the ironclad battles led by Admiral Porter along the Mississippi and Yazoo Rivers and their tributaries and swamps. No recent book on the Civil War achieves the level of detail and insight as Vicksburg. Available now wherever books are sold. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Grady, author of Matthew Fontaine Maury, Father of Oceanography. It is a biography of this uh, Confederate naval leader, uh, dating from 1806 to 1873. Uh, John, we were talking about his, his Jeffersonian gunboat idea, build a bunch of small gunboats for the coast. But he said uh, Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mallory, was not interested, wanted to build big ironclads like the Virginia. Uh, Maury could not be quiet uh, about anything, apparently. He, he, wrote, he wrote a lot of letters to be published in newspapers. Uh, where did that get him? Well, uh, you can say that it got him a million dollars to start the project, uh, so it was uh, effective in, in typical Maury fashion, and also, I should add, in typical 19th century uh, fashion. He wrote under a large number of pseudonyms uh, to uh, make the point that Mallory and Davis were letting the defenses, the coastal defenses of the Confederacy, just fall apart. And particularly, he was endangering Virginia. And since the Confederate capital was now in Richmond, and the Virginians had a large say in what was the Confederate government, they were just very, very willing to say, give the money to Maury, and they did. But after the Battle of Hampton Roads, then the idea became, well, we got to iron plate everything to include the gunboats. Well, of course, that cuts down their maneuverability, et cetera, and there's not that kind of money uh, in the Confederacy. We're talking real money, not paper Confederate dollars. We're talking, mm-hmm. you know, cotton futures. We're talking gold. We're talking whatever uh, solid species they could get their hands on. Uh, there just wasn't that kind of money to go into a shipbuilding program uh, in, uh, overseas to uh, produce those gunboats or to produce them here in in, in the uh, U.S., particularly in Virginia and North Carolina. So eventually, Maury saw the light, and even though he had been ordered at one time to go to Cuba because Mallory was so fed up with this sniping in the press, uh, and then that had been canceled at the insistence of the Virginia, excuse me, of the Confederate Congress. Uh, he then said, "Well, okay, I'll take your, I'll take whatever your best assignment was." And he eventually went in 1862 uh, to Great Britain, and there 
he hooked up with uh, Bullock, James Bullock, who was the head of the Confederate Secret Service. When we say the Confederate Secret Service, there we're really not talking about espionage, even though there was some of that. Mainly, we're talking about shipbuilding, and we're also talking about buying arms and trying to keep this all enough under the cover of British neutrality and French neutrality or wherever they could get anything uh, and just not violate those laws, at least openly. And uh, Maury fit in very well at, uh, with, uh, with Bullock. Bullock was extremely complimentary to Maury for his service, uh, arranging to get some uh, ships that became commerce raiders. Uh, one in particular, Georgia, was fairly effective. Rappahannock, uh, not, not so much. But he was very complimentary to him on that. And Maury actually, for a long time, became the senior naval officer in uh, Europe for the Confederacy. But I think his more lasting effect in Europe was to carry the Confederate propaganda message to the highest levels of British and French society because he had that access through mm-hmm. his scientific work. And by so the they, end they've of all the heard war, of him already. Oh, yeah, they'd all heard of him. He was, he was welcomed in their homes. They feeded him. He was, he was regarded as a great hero, uh, you know, and, and a great scientist. By the end of the war, the British are saying, hey, Matt, do you want to share information that you now have on new developments in uh, mines? And we'll show you all the new stuff we've been doing in high-powered guns. And, oh, by the way, we know, Matt, that you guys, meaning Maury himself, you've been dealing with these submersibles. He also ended up dealing some with submarines. We're very interested in that. What do you want to share with us about that? And this is from the head of the uh, Bureau of Ordnance in the Royal Navy. I mean, it, it was astounding. And the French are doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, the French are sharing with him uh, their advances in um, electrically powered torpedoes. I mean, Just to, to hey. flash back a moment uh, to the 1850s, in 1855, he publishes the book Physical Geography of the Sea, which right. is why your, your subtitle is Father of Oceanography. And that, that's a book that people in Britain have read. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's also involved in the transatlantic cable. If you want, just give us <clears throat> give us a quick uh, right. a thumbnail on on the transatlantic cable. The transatlantic cable actually came about because of his insistence on uh, exploring the Amazon. This so intrigued uh, Cyrus Field, who became interested in the Amazon through Maury's writings under the pseudonym Inca. Uh, that he saw the great possibilities of exploitation of minerals and forestry uh, that he could make a new fortune on, and he began to correspond with Maury. But one of the other things, and Field was just all over the place on projects. I mean, he went to the Amazon. He he goes down to the Amazon with Frederick Church, the great landscape artist, so that they can get drawings of what where they're going to do work down there. But he comes back to Maury, and he says, well. I'm interested in putting together a consortium here in the United States that will work with a consortium in Britain 
to lay a transatlantic cable. We know we can lay cable underwater because we've seen it between uh, Dublin and London. Uh, I can't remember where it is in France, but it's, uh, I'll say Calais. Uh, from Calais to whatever the closest point in Britain is, and then obviously back into uh, back to London. And then there were cables uh, going up in Canada all the way into Newfoundland for uh, telegraph communications. And Maury was asked, okay, what's on the bottom of the ocean? And one of his loyal lieutenants, uh, uh, Brooke, John Mercer Brooke, came up with a patent sounding device, which was really a cannonball on a long, like, harpoon, rather than having a ship stop in the middle of the water and try to take a sounding of how deep the ocean floor was, you could go out in a whale boat or a small boat and do the same thing and actually find the depth of the ocean. So what they were looking for in the cable, what Field wanted for Maury was, are there currents on the bottom of the sea? What is the condition of the bottom of the sea if you lay a cable. Now, the cable's going to be a combination of metals and uh, gutta percha, which is like rubber, but not rubber. And mm-hmm. how far can this, and the physics was how far can the signal go? That was not Maury's concern. That was uh, Michael Faraday's in Britain and Samuel F.B. Morris in the U.S. Well, Maury came back with a bathymetrical scale of the ocean floor. Now, it wasn't Correct in the sense there are some currents down on the bottom of the sea, and there is not a telegraphic plateau, which is what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. But you could safely lay a cable if it was of a certain weight, and you could stretch it 3,000 miles. And that's Maury's great contribution to it. It first started with Brooks, being able to sound the depth of the ocean, and that so, was crucial to make so it that, work. It, and that success in the 1850s was temporary, but but later uh, replicated. You know, makes Maury uh, uh, practically a household name in, in Britain, and that helps him with his propaganda. Uh, Correct. We're we're running near the end of the show, and I have to ask about. Uh, after the the war comes to the conclusion that we all know it, it comes to, Maury is still in, in Britain. Uh, the next thing you know, he's been named Minister of Colonization by Emperor Maximilian of Mexico, uh, charged mm-hmm. with creating New Virginia in Mexico. How did that happen? Well, because again, because of a scientific connection to the Habsburg family is how that occurred. But, and, uh, and to Maximilian himself, and Maury was intent on leading disaffected Confederates from, you know, the defeated Confederacy into Mexico, and they were promised all of these things by Maximilian, basically that they could do whatever they wanted to do, sort of not including slavery. When I say sort of not, mm-hmm. Maury at one point said that they could, but... It never never came out to be that way. However, it did attract a few thousand Confederates. The problem, of course, was Maximilian 
lost the French backing and could not hold on to the throne and eventually was murdered and uh, the Mexicans took back control of their own government. And Maury so, left. <laughs> Maury went back to uh, Great Britain. And and from there, uh, I mean, I have to say about this book, it it's dense in that this guy, not, not that the writing is dense, but that he's doing something different in every chapter, uh, almost every page. Uh, I'll leave it to listeners to read a copy to find out when he becomes president of the University of Alabama. Uh, mm-hmm. Not for very long, uh, but he does. Before, uh, before Lou Saban was there. Yes, yes. There's no the football <laughs> team was not good, and football had not yet been invented. But there he is. Um, and I just want to raise one more issue. Uh, a, a thread. There are many threads running through this book. Uh, his religious life is one of them. Uh, another one is his interest in a, a weather service, based on having people report the weather using the telegraph from wherever they are. Correct. Which mm-hmm. strikes me as, as the forerunner of crowdsourcing, the kind of thing we do today uh, you can do on the Internet to get everybody to contribute a little bit. And you get something like Wikipedia, which for all its many flaws and, and dangers is also very useful at times. Uh, he, he's a century and a half ahead of his time. In that regard, he is. But what he was doing was doing the same thing for uh, weather on uh, land, what he had been mm-hmm. doing for weather on sea. He had been having ships, masters, and captains, to include whalers, send back that kind of information. And uh, he, that's how you got to the physical geography of the sea, which was one of the most popular books written in the 19th century. And his sailing directions that went out with the yearly charts of what the uh, Navy was producing, they were producing something like 3,000 volumes of sailing directions. Now think about that in mid-1850s, and sometimes going into second and third printings of 3,000 more volumes of all this weather information. Well, all of this information was coming in from the Army, Army Surgeon General's office west of the Mississippi, and agreed upon weather stations east of the Mississippi was all coming to the Smithsonian. But they were only publishing a once-a-year book on what weather was. <laughs> Maury <laughs> said, not, not why helpful. don't we do this every, you know, every day? Because you're already getting this information. And it was fought tooth and nail by uh, Henry. He did not want to let that happen. And uh, it was only in the 1870s that you got, 1871, I believe, was when the first National Weather Service was established. Well, there are so many remarkable things in here. Uh, It it does not surprise me we're out of time already, because I I knew as I was reading, there's no way we could touch on everything uh, that, that John Fontaine Morey did. So listeners, if you want to find out all about this, remarkable character, get yourself a copy of Matthew Fontaine Maury, Father of Oceanography, by John Grady, who has been our guest tonight. John, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Gary, thank you very much for inviting me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.